Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. As we're covering so many verses this morning, I'm not going to stand, have you stand and read the whole thing, plus I don't want to go through those names more than but once, which will make sense here in a minute. Pray with me. Father, we do thank you that we can gather together one more time, Lord, and we can listen to your word. Lord, it is your word that has the ability to change hearts and change lives. And I just pray, Father, that you would take every word that goes out of my mouth, Lord, and let it just, Lord, find its place in every person represented here. And let it do, Lord, the only, that which only your, Lord, your word can do, and that is to change a life. We need that today, Father. Every one of us needs it in a different way. I pray you would just show yourself mighty this morning. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. He knew the secret of strength through weakness. Complimented once by a friend on the impact of his ministry, Hudson answered, It seemed to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. And when he at last found me, he said, He is weak enough. He'll do. He summed it up by saying, All God's giants have been weak men and women who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. The great and decisive question of life is not what we achieve, nor how good we become, and certainly not how much we acquire. It is, who is your king? It will do no good at all to be highly successful, seriously virtuous, and even ridiculously wealthy if you're on the wrong side of this issue. Likewise, even if you achieve little or fail in much and lose everything, but have the right king, in the end, all will be well. Now this simple point is difficult for us to grasp because we hate the idea that we are weak and are not the masters of our own destinies. We love to pretend that we are in control. The truth is, however, that we are utterly dependent upon our king. We need a king who is powerful for us, one who is able to save us from our enemies and give us security. If we have such a king, all will be well. If we do not, then our lives will ultimately end in failure. Now this does not mean that it's unimportant how we live, on the contrary. But it does mean that what our king does is far more important. Now the king of whom I speak is Jesus Christ. Those who belong to him know well that his powerful goodness is pivotal. 
Of course, with Jesus as our king, how we live and what we do does matter. But it does not matter as much as having him as our king. And that's basically what chapter 3 is all about. Look at verse 1 with me, please. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. It looked as though everything was in good order for a peaceful transition, but there were hidden landmines in the diplomatic field that were ready to explode. Ishbosheth was still on the throne, and David would have to deal with him and the loyal supporters from the house of Saul. If you remember from the last time that we were together, Abner had killed Asahel, and Joab was now biding his time until he could avenge his brother's death. Now the phrase, a long war, suggests a state of hostility as an occasional clashes rather than just one long battle after another. But David was also biding his time, knowing that God would keep his promises and give him eventually the throne of Israel. However, there may have been times when this was far from obvious to David while he was in the thick of the struggle. If David had had a New Testament back then, I bet he would have had underlined Hebrews 2.8 and had stars drawn all around it. Speaking of Christ, it reads, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But here's the key. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. I'm sure David often felt this way. God had put the kingdom in subjection under David. But sometimes... It sure didn't look that way. Likewise today, the kingdom of Christ is growing stronger and stronger, although many cannot see it. The truth is, God is at work, sovereign over all human wickedness, foolishness, and weakness. And he is establishing his kingdom and his king. So it was in the early days of David's kingdom. The long war between the house of Saul in the north and the house of David in the south lasts over seven years. The north are defeated, but they still keep on struggling. David is God's chosen king, but the disobedient in the north refuse to acknowledge it. And that's the way that the wicked often are. They often die slowly, and so they keep rebelling. The Bible says the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until the dawning of the day. But the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. How many of you have a loved one or a friend at this moment whose life is in a downward spiral, but they refuse to pull out of it and repent? Now why is that? Because they are still thinking just like the northern kingdom of our text, that they can still rewrite God's absolute morality and his rule. It's like that guy who fell off the skyscraper, and as he passed the 40th floor, he thought to himself, well, so far so good. 
But at some point, he's going to come to an abrupt recognition of gravity. The thing is, sometimes we can be so stiff-necked and hard-hearted that God will allow pain to do what precepts don't. And just like this northern group, when we oppose God's king, King Jesus, we will grow weaker and weaker until mankind is either defeated in one of two ways, in either repentance and fellowship or disobedience and judgment. But be sure of this one thing. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At this time, David is ruling over Judah. At war against Abner and the household of Saul, there are battles raging, but Saul's forces are growing weaker and weaker. David, on the other hand, continues to grow stronger. Spiritually, Saul is a symbol of sin and self, and David is a symbol of the Savior. You know, there's a war going on in my flesh that will last my entire lifetime. But the house of Saul, the house of self, the house of sin grows weaker and weaker while the kingdom of God in my life grows stronger and stronger. Sure, there are setbacks along the way. Sure, there are defeats that we have on certain days. But as I look back and chart the course of my life, I can see that he who began a good work in me is indeed being faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And because this morning the one who is in you is greater than the one who comes against you, even though you may have discouraging days, you can be sure that in your own life, David is truly becoming stronger while Saul is growing weaker. Verse 2. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Honium the Jesuitus. His second, Chiliab by Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. The third, Absalom the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah the son of Hagib. The fifth, Shephatiah the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim by David's wife Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. You look at these four verses and you think, how are you going to get any meat out of that lobster? I mean, it does look a little crustaceous, doesn't it? David is going to have six wives who are going to have six sons in seven years. Now, some men collect stamps or baseball cards, but back then, and even now in Utah, some men collect wives. But here's the question. Can a Jewish king take multiple wives? No, he cannot. Scripture says that a Jewish king is not allowed to multiply gold or silver. God would say to his kings, I don't want you trusting in opulence and luxury. Secondly, they were not to multiply horses or chariots. I don't want you trusting in your military or in your own strength. And finally, you cannot multiply wives. But this is what kings would do. They would have a lot of wives and a lot of kids. 
As for David, his family was also increasing, and the king now had a growing harem like any other eastern monarch. Now, of course, David's son Solomon would go far beyond what his father had done or what any Jewish king would ever do. How many wives does Solomon have? Solomon would end up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Or as the little girl in Sunday school who was asked that question said, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 porcupines. Which may be closer to the truth if you think about it. Guys, can you imagine having a thousand wives? It's hard enough to even remember one anniversary and one birthday. No way that's going to end well. So as we look at these things, we learn that in verse 3, David marries a pagan woman, the daughter of a Canaanite king, King Jeshur. Now the product of that relationship will be a man named Absalom, who will cause his father's heart to be broken and bring division in the kingdom. Be not unequally yoked, Paul warns. If you choose to be yoked with an unbeliever, it will break your heart down the road, and that's a guarantee. Three of the names mentioned here will bring David an immense amount of sorrow and grief. Take note of them and file them in your brains or your hearts or your spleen. Just file them somewhere for later retrieval. Amnon, he will become a murderer. Absalom will become a murderer and an insurrectionist. And Adonijah, he will actually proclaim himself to be the next king and start a coup. This all happens because of David's disobedience in marrying multiple wives. I think one of the great lessons in the passage can be found here. We can read this and think to ourselves, why didn't God just, why didn't God just judge David there right on the spot? Why did the Lord wait so long? Listen to me. Just because God does not judge us immediately for any of our sins, that doesn't mean that that sin isn't going to catch up with us one day. This is a crucial aspect in living a holy life. Because if we aren't careful, we we can begin to fudge a little bit in our Christian walk in terms of obedience to the Lord. And because God doesn't instantly judge us, we think that he must be cool with it. Or at the very least, it must not be that big of an issue in the big scheme of things. Listen to this verse out of Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap everlasting life. Now that verse teaches us several things. One, it is possible to deceive ourselves concerning our sin. I've walked long enough with the Lord to realize that my primary problem isn't with the devil, it isn't with the culture, it isn't even with Pastor John. My primary problem is with Bill Scott when he allows himself to wander back in the arena of his fleshly nature. 
Secondly, when we do that, we are essentially mocking God. We are saying without the words, I really don't think that this particular act of disobedience is all that big of a deal. I mean, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, right? And finally, that verse tells us that whatever sinful seeds we have sown will one day sprout in our lives. And that's the thing with seeds, isn't it? You don't throw an apple seed in the ground and come back the next day and start picking apples. No, it takes a long time to germinate and to grow. It is the exact same way with sin. Just because we don't see the harvest in a day or a week or a month or maybe even for years doesn't mean that it's not one day going to bring about a harvest of sorrow in our lives. You have to be careful whenever you think that my life is going okay. Because you can have a sense of things going great and you seem to think that everything is fine. But if you are not walking with Christ, your God cannot be how your life seems to be going at any particular time. Before I was converted, in many ways, I was very happy. I was devastatingly handsome. But I was also incredibly humble, and not many people can pull that off. But I was also on the express train to everlasting torment. So how do we know how we are truly doing? The Bible is that plumb line and it is that standard. It is the standard that we are to measure our lives against. James says the scripture is likened unto a mirror. And that we can gaze into it and has the ability to accurately reflect the condition of our heart and our soul. This also speaks to that great temptation of any type of leader to develop a sense of self-entitlement, to think that they are somehow different from everybody else, that the Bible applies to everyone else, but I am somehow special and apart from those commands. So I can have multiple wives if I'm the king. I mean, God surely understands all the pressure that I'm under. And so that particular law must just apply to the hoi polloi, the common people, the great unwashed masses, but it doesn't apply to me. And to somehow think that God will wink at my disobedience because I stand behind a pulpit is incredibly arrogant. It simply does not work that way. You see, power has the ability to be intoxicating. The Bible says a man is tested by how he handles the praise that is afforded to him. That's one of the reasons why you see certain preachers fall. Now granted, some of them were just wolves who eventually got exposed. But I believe that some of them started out with all the right intentions, but eventually started to believe all their press clippings. And so they felt that maybe God would make certain allowances to them that he wouldn't give the average Joe. Now with that said, please keep praying for me. I shuffle around on feet of clay just like you do. 
And I would rather God remove me from this earth before I bring shame on his kingdom and this church. Verse 6, please. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rispa, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me with today at the fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Verse 6 says that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Well, how was one way that you could do that? Now, this sounds strange to our modern ears, but one way to accomplish this was to sleep with the king's concubine. At that time, when a man took another man's concubine, in essence, he was saying, I'm now stepping into his shoes. That's why a few chapters from now, when Absalom rebels against David, he is advised to take his father's concubine as a sign of the nation that he is in control. And that seems to be what is happening here, although Abner initially denies it. It's possible that Abner did take Rispa just to precipitate a quarrel with Ishbosheth and to declare his change of allegiance. And if that is so, he succeeded. Ishbosheth did not ask whether Abner had done this. That was apparently not in dispute. He asked, what do you think you are doing, Abner? Now, Abner's response will confirm the allegation was true, and therefore Abner had his eye on Ishbosheth's throne. I read this week about Libby Riddles. She won the Alaskan dog sled race and said she will use the $50,000 grand prize for a trip to herself to Hawaii and a box of biscuits for her dogs. Incredible. Here the dogs pulled her, 1,135 miles through brutal cold weather and terribly tough terrain. They were really the ones that won the race, and yet she's going to Hawaii, and they're getting some biscuits. That's basically what Abner is saying here. I'm the one who put you in power, and I have done all the work, and now you're treating me like a dog. In verse 8, Abner even shouts out the question, Am I a dog's head? Now that's an interesting question. I bet you never put those words together in a sentence before. Am I a dog's head? And by the way, if you do think you're a dog's head, please see me and we will set up some counseling. After all I've done for you, Abner shouted in effect. Abner was not one to be talked down to even by the man he had made king. Instead, Abner immediately assumed the position of the superior in this exchange. Abner was so upset at Ishbosheth for challenging concerning the concubine that he said, I'm going to see to it that God's promise to David actually comes to pass. I'm going to see to it that the kingdom is transferred from Saul to David. 
Now that word transferred is interesting. Paul uses that same word in Colossians 1 when he says, For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. We also have been transferred. Once in the kingdom of darkness, we are now in the kingdom of light. Like Abner, once we were fighting against the son of David, but now we follow him. Verse 11 says, Ishbosheth cannot answer Abner because he was afraid of him. But think of this. Seven years earlier, Abner looked like his best friend. Seven years earlier, he would have said, Abner, why are you showing such kindness to me? Seven years earlier, he would have said, Abner, I've never had anyone take an interest in my welfare the way that you have. But now the truth comes out. Abner didn't love me. He loved himself, and he used me. Does Abner sound like someone that God is working in? Who does it sound like is working in Abner? It sounds like Satan to me. I will lie to you. I will perpetrate righteousness to you. I will perpetrate humility to you. I will perpetrate love to you. Because my plan is to just use you, and on your dead and lifeless body, I will exalt myself as the king. Like Satan, Abner is only concerned about exalting himself, and he doesn't care one whit the broken people he leaves in his wake to get where he wants. Abner was a pragmatic politician as well as a shrewd general, and his basic principle was always join the winning side. When he perceived the throne of Ishbosheth had no future, he decided to switch loyalties and thereby guarantee his own security. After all, David had a reputation for kindness and had shown remarkable patience with the house of Saul. Verse 12, please. And Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you. You shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. In verse 12, Abner asked, To whom does this land belong? I think this is tantalizingly ambiguous. Was Abner implying a recognition on his part that the land actually belonged to David? I don't think so. Although his vagueness may have suited his purpose here. I think Abner was rather making the suggestion, as his following words will make clear, that he was the one who had control of this land. We see that Abner has changed his tune, but he hasn't changed his instrument. He is still out for number one. David says, all right, 
I will negotiate with you if you bring my wife back. What is David doing? One thing he doesn't need is one more wife. He already has six, and we'll add more as the story continues. But perhaps in this case, it was also political. That is, if he could get Saul's daughter back, it would broaden his base of power. Mikhail had presumably been taken wrongly from him against her will. This was one expression of Saul's persecution against David. The return of Mikhail would represent an acknowledgement on his part of the house of Saul of David's rights. It would imply that Saul had been wrong, not only taking Mikhail from David, but also in all of his opposition to David. And so they take Mikhail from her husband, Paltiel, who walks behind them, weeping over his wife. Now, at first glance, it's a heartbreaking scene with him walking behind them, weeping over his wife. Until we remember that he freely and under no compulsion married another man's wife. So this was a, just a consequence of that sinful decision he had made years before. Once again, I remind us of the Galatians passage. Paltiel is now sowing what he reaped a few years earlier. Once again, God will not be mocked. Connections formed in sin must sooner or later end in sorrow and suffering. So what have we learned this morning? David already had three wives, but as he adds more and more, we're going to see that the story gets worse and worse. Once again, according to Deuteronomy 17, 17, kings are not to multiply horses, store gold, or multiply wives. And knowing the word the way that David did, we know that David knew this. We're going to see in the coming months that David is very flawed. He has a propensity to lie. He is tempted by women. He has an ego that we're going to see in the next part of the chapter. And yet, overarching over all of that, he had a passion for God. We can have a tendency to say, sure, I sin, but I don't sin to the degree that David did. I never had anyone murdered. But that actually is the wrong perspective entirely. Don't measure your sins against David's. Instead, measure your virtues against David's. David killed a giant. David wrote psalms. David was a lover of God. David was given to prayer. David praised God continually. So I have to ask myself, am I a giant killer? Am I laying down everything for my Lord? Am I a poet and a prophet, a singer and a warrior for God? Are you? How strong is my passion for God? Can I truly say like David said, one thing I have desired of the Lord, and this one thing I will seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Where did David get this passion for God? I think it was developed in the pastures as he watched his sheep and in the caves as he fled from Saul. It was developed through prayer and through spending time along with God. And maybe the Lord this morning is whispering in your ear, 
I see that same potential. How can this be, you ask? God would say, because I put David in that place, and I gave David the grace that he needed. All he did was respond to my tugging and my whispering. You see, the path to passion and closeness to God is not mysterious or even mystical. It is very simple and it is very practical. When the Lord says, get up and pray, you say, okay. When he tells you to take on that giant and share your faith, you say, yes. When he inspires you to forgive and love someone, you do something good for them. You make that casserole or that phone call. It is not up to us to generate the fires of passion. Our job is simply to stir the coals through faithfulness and obedience. And in that sense, we all need to be more like David. And Father, I pray that for all of us this morning, that although David was flawed, as everyone within the sound of my voice, including me, is flawed in many ways. But, O Lord, he also had a heart for you. And that's the thing that we want to seek after, O God. You give us the same type of heart that we could be called men and women after your own heart. Do that for us today, Lord. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.